You're listening to Louisiana Insider, a superlative guide to a great state's destinations. Hosted by Errol Laborde, executive editor of Louisiana Life Magazine. It's not Louisiana song. It's my favorite melody. It's not Louisiana song. Hearing it echo through the cypress trees. fun things to talk about uh, uh, today. This year is the 125th anniversary of the ordinance allowing for the creation of, uh, of Storyville, which is certainly a, a colorful part of the, of the, uh, of, of the, the city's history. The ordinance was passed uh, in January. And then we have some an- other anniversaries coming up uh, with the, uh, the prohibition and just all, all kinds of things that were going on uh, in New Orleans. Wouldn't we have someone who's been chronicling all of this history, Sally Asher, uh, Sally Asher is uh, kind of like her, her own historian. She has a, um, a lot of work. She's working on a book on, on prohibition, I believe. But she's also recently started something called Red Sash Tours, which are tours into the, in the French Quarter. And Sally, I want to talk a little bit about those also. Let's begin, for, first of all, we're talking about prohibition. Um, I mean, not, not prohibition, but uh, uh, Storyville. I think we know the fundamental story, but kind of fill in the gaps here that there was a lot of resistance to, to prostitution, that an ordinance was passed or created as a way of at least legalizing one part of town as being a part where you could have prostitution. Is that correct? Somewhat correct. So what happened was they believed that the best way to control vice was to contain it. So they had an ordinance passed, um, which Alderman Sidney Story wrote up saying that this certain area designated, the 16 block area was gonna be designated for lewd women to um, ply their vocation basically. And so while it didn't technically legalize it, it did allow them to regulate it. Though we do tend to loosely say that, you know, we were the only red light district in the country and there were many that actually was legalized at that time period. So if you could regulate it, then isn't that in a sense legalizing it? Well, they would have it where prostitutes would have to register. They would have to go in and get their prostitution card and they were only allowed to live or inhabit certain houses and areas in a specific district. So if they stepped outside the district and were caught for prostitution, they would be arrested. Um, Most of the prostitutes in Storyville who were arrested were arrested for other things such as uh, robbery, assault, brawling with customers, with each other. Very colorful. Now, the area where this existed uh, is roughly that area, if you go downtown, where the uh, auditorium is, municipal auditorium, it would be that vicinity. I guess Basin Street would be one of, one of the key streets, but that area would be key In area. The Tremay area. Yes. It was right located right outside the French Quarter and in what is known as the the Treme area. And unfortunately, 1930s, 1940s was I think Lulu White's brothel on Basin Street was one of the last one to go. It's pretty much all that's left of it right now is parking lots and um, federal housing. Now, but by 1940s, it wasn't serving as a brothel. That was the building. It was just the building, yeah. And the end, 
uh, I believe very strongly, and I actually just found this article recently in the 1970s where a writer said, you know, if we had not destroyed um, these brothels, which some of them were absolutely gorgeous, amazing, we would have the hottest tourist district in the sure. country. Like this spot would, would be a, the best tourist district in the country. Um, I still sometimes when I'm downtown in the French Quarter, just walking around, a tourist will stop me and ask me if I can direct them to Storyville. And I have to sadly well, tell them it no longer exists. People hear about because of Song Basin Street and Song Basin Street. And I think they say, gee, I want to see Basin Street with this. And they, they come here now and they see really nothing. I mean, it's, it's a nothing street. But there was a time that Basin Street was really the backbone to this area. Oh, definitely. I mean, the backbone for pretty much any form of entertainment that you wanted, <laughs> whether it was considered moral or immoral, but most likely it was considered immoral. Now, one of the, the better known buildings in, in Storyville and Prime was, was, was Mahogany Hall. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. So Mahogany Hall was, was run by Lulu Wyatt. <laughs> and she, was, she was quite the character. I would say Probably the most prominent or the most famous madams at that time were Josie Arlington, uh, Willie Piazza, and Lulu White. And Lulu White and Willie Piazza were African-American prostitutes. At the time, they both identified, I believe, um, Willie Piazza identified as an octroon, which was considered one-eighth African-American, and Lulu White identified that she was from the West Indies. Um, octroon prostitutes were considered extremely valuable and very exotic. So they would label them in the guidebooks, which were called the blue books under the words, oh. Willie Piazza was kind of called the Countess. Uh, that was her nickname. She smoked these uh, long cigarettes, had a diamond jewel cigarette holder. She wore, um, uh, what are they called? Uh, monocles, very dressed very well. A lot of the society women would, um, hire their dressmakers to come with them because she usually made an appearance at the fairgrounds to copy Willie Piazza's dresses. So you have Willie Piazza on one end, it was this very considered elegant, sophisticated, and many jazz musicians of that time, like Jelly Roll Morton, said that she was one of the few madams that actually cared about music, cared about um, the musicians that she, that she hired. Lulu White, on the other hand, was considered um, kind of obnoxious. She wore all her jewelry on every single finger, basically everything of exposed flesh. She had a diamond on it. And she would even advertise that um, she lit up better than the St. Louis, I think it was the World Exposition. Uh, she was frequently arrested for brawling and for uh, slave trafficking and underage girls and just about anything that you can, you can imagine. But she had a lot of uh, pull with the police force during that time during that time period. Okay, so Lulu White was Mahogany Hall. Yes. Right. And would you agree that that was the most elaborate, the most elegant of all the places? Um, I mean, it's a basis of opinion. Josie Arlington, some considered hers as well. She had a sixteen bedrooms, and each bedroom was uh, decorated for a different a different theme. There would be you know, a Turkish theme or a Japanese, you know, a Japanese thing theme. Um, so I, I would say it's just a matter of, of opinion, but those three were probably considered the, one of the top brothels. The top now, were these buildings that they built themselves, that they 
So oh, definitely, down. definitely. So Josie Arlington's parents were from Germany. They were German immigrants and she became orphaned at a really young age. And it's alleged that she was taken in by an aunt who would beat her. She was forced to sell apples on the street if she didn't bring a certain amount home every day. So she turned to prostitution at a really young age and kind of built herself up from this um, hard scrabble prostitute on the street to one of the most powerful and wealthy madams in New Orleans, as well as Willie Piazza and, and Lulu White. They were all definitely self, self-made. Now, Josie Arlington, there's the, the legend of the cemetery and the tomb with the, with the light on it um, back by the New Basin Canal. Is that true? Yes and no. So Josie Arlington, um, her and her, her lover, Tom, uh, John Brady, by J.T. Brady, she had a, a niece named Anna Dubler. Josie Arlington's real name was Marianne Dubler, who she took care of. She educated her at convent schools, um, Center for European Vacations. She had no idea that her aunt was one of the most powerful madams in Storyville. And they bought a house up on Esplanade Avenue, which was actually right next to Sydney's story, which, as you know, is just a couple miles from the French Quarter. But in that day, that was a world away. It was a completely different world. So she falls ill in 1913. And it's believed she kind of went in and out of dementia and confessed to her niece that she was actually not married. And she was also a madame to boot, which the niece was horrified by. So she dies on Valentine's Day in, in 1914. And it finds out in her will that she's left pretty much her entire estate to uh, her niece, Anna, which upset a lot of the family members and upset Brady, who she had signed the house over to a few years before her, her giant mansion on um, Esplanade Avenue. So he finds out that because they're not married, they're only allowed, he's only allowed to inherit one-tenth of her movables. And obviously a house is not movable. So what happens is the day after the will is read, which is on the 20th, on the 21st, uh, marries Josie Arlington's niece, Anna Dubler, who's 22 years his junior, convent raised, and uh, for her entire life has believed him to be her uncle. And so they get married. She signs everything over to him because at one point she said that she felt like she needed a protector and, you know, why not him since he had been looking out for her her entire life. Now, Josie Arlington had paid for this elaborate tomb in Metairie Cemetery before her death, which was done by Albert Weivlin, who commissioned some of the most beautiful, in my opinion, um, funerary monuments in Metairie Cemetery. And this was a very high class. Look for his marble, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, he was... He did the Hennessy tomb. That was his first kind of uh, big. He did um, the Policeman's Benevolent Society in, in Greenwood. He's just done a lot of amazing tombs. Um, Joseph Never Smile Harrington, this gambler who's also buried in Metairie Cemetery. Anyway, so he builds this tomb that's interpreted very much of kind of thumbing her nose at society. It's this kind of pinkish granite with um, this woman holding flowers reaching her hand out to the door, which some people said was a representative of that Josie Arlington claimed that she never accepted virgins in her brothel, which was not the same for Lulu White, or that was her going into respectability, you know, kind of her venturing in. It created this big scandal. Um, 
there was a light that was installed at some point and then at night it would light the tomb up. So people would come in at night believing that the, the tomb was glowing and that Josie Arlington or the statue of the woman was getting out and, and walking around. And for some reason, it's either they say that they bankrupt her estate or for whatever reasons unknown, they ended up, Anna and Brady ended up selling the tomb to the Morales' family and moving Josie Arlington out of it, which was just a complete shame. I, I bet she never saw, you know, here she works her whole life to protect her niece and then she marries her, her lover and uh, kicks her out of her own tomb. Now the tomb still exists. The tomb still exists. It's, it's pretty much known as the Josie Arlington tomb. Okay, hey, help me with this. Isn't it, I almost hate to tell people where it is because they're, they're in their cars driving. So they're talking because it is, is it right along the road? Like if you had taken the Metairie Road exit, if you went along the interstate mm -hmm. and you take the Metairie Road exit, that you'd see the tomb. You can tomb see the back of it. You can you see the back. Okay. Yeah. All right, the back, all right. And then, and so, okay. So if you're in your car, just don't pay attention. Just go around the corner. <laughs> well, Look for the kind of pink, brownish, reddish, large yeah, granite right. tomb. With the legend about the red light, that area, again, it's just a legend, was once a, where the interstate is, was part of the New Basin Canal. Is that correct? That was a canal. And there was a bridge there. There was like a famous bridge. And the legend is, is that because it was a bridge, it had like a light on it, like a red light. And sometimes that the light would shine on the tomb. And so that's what gave it that, that image. And pe yeah, people thought it was haunted and they would come out at all hours to gaze at this tomb. And eventually they were like, look, it's, it's just a light. Yeah. Fascinating. By the way, that's a whole nother story for another day. But when that was a canal, I mean, just a picture, just picture the, uh, uh, the Ottawa Expressway Canal. And I've heard stories about people when they were young, when they were young men, that there'd be these barges coming in from the lake and like they have watermelons on them. And so these barges would go in and go in and they'd essentially steal watermelons uh, from the barges because they wouldn't run in. So that was quite it was, a time. It was interesting. I, I spoke with the director of Metairie Cemetery, Jerry Shane, because Metairie Cemetery is technically in New Orleans. And I said, what's the story behind that? And so when the New Basin Canal was in there, Metairie was the Metairie Cemetery was the cutoff. That was the start for Jefferson Parish. When they filled in the New Basin Canal, for reasons unknown, they changed the parish lines, which is now behind Metairie Cemetery. So Metairie Cemetery is technically in New Orleans. Okay, gee, I didn't know that. All right. Um, it's just another then, one of those New Orleans yeah. <laughs> mix-ups. Yeah. And then Metairie Road, which runs alongside it, uh, that that path would have gone in towards City Park. And if you go into City Park, the, uh, uh, I guess we call the, the bayou that runs alongside City Park Avenue is what is left of the Metairie Canal. Um, I'm not sure about the Metairie Canal, but I'll take your, I'll take your word for it. Well, I don't have my word for this. This is just yeah. hearsay. Okay. But I think that that was the case at the Metairie Canal. It's the only one that still exists, all right? I mean, it's a natural. I mean, everything else in City Park is, is man-made. But um, anyway, so anyway, so what happened that in, uh, in 1917, with, uh, going back to Storyville? Oh, gosh, lots. So 
1917. So there's a cabaret district that I write about in my book that's that I that I love. It's called the Tango Belt. And it pops up around Storyville and it's cabarets and bars and saloons. And it's considered um, more rowdy and more filled with vice than Storyville actually is. So they start this massive, the um, Harold Newman, whose official title I believe was the safety public, com public commissioner of safety. He starts his campaign in early 1917 because they're getting all this backlash stating none of the liquor laws are being held. Um, prostitutes are, you know, are still running wild. There's illegal brothels that are all, all over the city. So he kind of does this cleanup campaign. One of his first things that he tries to do is to make the gay shattuck law and the Sunday law uh, legal, not legal, but enforced, I should say, because they were legal. They just weren't enforced because you would have the Sunday law required businesses to shut down at midnight on Saturday and then remain closed on Sunday. And most of the businesses just remained open, including the Grunewald Hotel, which is, as we now know, is the Roosevelt Hotel. And his argument was like, why should I shut down my bar when everybody around me is doing it? Like either everyone does it or no one does it. And right now no one is doing it. And there would be saloons that would literally be across the street from each other open. That one saloon would be uh, raided and fined for being open. And the other one, because they were playing, paying police protection, was not. So Newman starts this big campaign, which is kind of not undermine Mayor Martin Burham, but he doesn't have his full support. And at the same time, he's trying, he decides that the best way to kind of control Storyville even further is to segregate it. So he puts an ordinance out to segregate, to make a black Storyville and to basically move these brothel owners like Willie Piazza and Lulu Wright Lulu White, who have these very expensive, elaborate uh, mansions out of the district. So they fight against that, against that law. During this time, uh, we enter into, or we have uh, World War I is starting across the country. And it's basically believed that uh, you can't have a moral soldier uh, so close to a brothel. And so the city, the, the, not the city, the, the government, the federal government basically requests all the red light districts around the country to shut down because they're everywhere. But New Orleans is the only one that has an ordinance, you know, establishing it. They all shut down. Uh, Mayor Martin Burham refuses to shut down Storyville, goes in and pleads his case. Um, they said that the military lost 450 men a day, which was enough to basically run a battleship due to vice. And mothers did not want to send their, their young farm boy sons off to the war to have them come home with syphilis or gonorrhea. They were yeah. more concerned about them coming home <laughs> with what they called private diseases than they were um, having them come home missing a, you know, missing a limb or you know, an arm or a leg. So after much battle back and forth of trying to uh, keep it open, the Navy said, you shut down Storyville or, or we will. And so they shut down in November, 1917. Which was consistent with what was going on around the country. We were just the last ones. <laughs> uh, Storyville was the, the considered the last uh, stronghold. Um, everybody else had already done it. And this later came back to kind of um, bite Mayor Martin Burham because they felt like he was ignoring his patriotic duty. And part of your patriotic duty is to make sure that um, enlisted men don't sleep with prostitutes and 
drink and get diseases. Yeah. That make them incapable of fighting. What was his famous quote about prostitution? Uh, I think he said, you can make it illegal, but you can't make it unpopular. Yeah. With that paraphrasing. Yeah. Yeah. Which I guess is true. And so after it was closed in 1917, did these places just disperse to other areas around town or did they, or did they just fold yeah, up? Um, basically, Storyville kind of always ceased to exist. Um, not in that area. There was constantly arrests being made. A lot of the prostitutes went to Bucktown, and which was they were kind of largely, largely ignored. Um, there were also a book that would have been just where policemen would um, threaten homeowners who had come in and who are now living in, in, you know, these formal houses, saying that unless that they gave them protection money, they would arrest them as prostitutes, you know, a, a mother with, you know, and, you know, with the children, which would be a huge scandal to their name. So there were still shakedowns going on. It still existed. Um, it just was not in a specific area as it was before, but it, it, it definitely was. It definitely was still around. Was Bucktown and Jefferson Parish or or Lance? Because I know it's right on it's right on the edge. I'm sorry, I missed what you said. Bucktown was it in Jefferson Parish? Yes. Or Orleans. Uh, yeah. I think I I guess yeah, it's probably like right on right on the edge. I think it was in Jefferson Parish though, down by it's the lake. Yeah, if, if you're there and you and you sneeze, you can one of the different parish. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, so, like, don't uh, get me started on the neighborhoods. The battles yeah. that people go over of where their neighborhood starts and ends. Yeah, well, uh, there'll be another discussion. So there was a train station there. Uh, I think it was a Southern Railroad station. And if anybody's trying to envision this, if you're along Canal Street, there is this long, we call it neutral ground, there's this long median. It has a statue, is it a Bolivar or, or some sort seven, of South? So, yeah, Seven Bolivar. Yeah, yeah it's, it's sort of, it's like a tribute to South America uh, type of statues on, on that long route. But that's where the train station was. Uh, and uh, as train stations back then would be, they were long because it's the, the, the trains would come in and they, and they pull in. But man, what a location for it, especially if anybody's <laughs> coming to town and wanting to do in the train. There's many reports of prostitutes just standing in the window naked, just uh, waving at the train passing by, which was technically illegal. Uh, but they would also pay policemen to look the other way. Would, so in the window advertise better. Okay. What? Uh, I said it was illegal to stand in the window naked and wave mm -hmm. at soldiers. Yes. But with an uptight town. You couldn't keep your windows open. Yeah. yeah. And so prostitutes, a lot of prostitutes would pay off policemen just to look the other way, because if you're next door to a brothel who's not paying and their windows are shut and your windows are open and you're displaying all that you have, chances are you're gonna get the customers. And these would be trains, this was a Southern Railroad. And so it would have run between New Orleans and maybe as far as Washington and New York, but, but it was a lot of short hops too, like Biloxi and, and Gulfport, and so a lot of people just went back and forth between New Orleans and those towns, especially on, on weekends. So it was a very, it was about a very popular line. Um, it was the last commercial train line to still in the dining car to have oh, wood burning stores. Um, you know, if you wanted to pancake something, it was, it was on a wood burning stove. 
those lovely signatures. Um, and so all that was, just think at, at the prime, what all that area must have been like with the Tango Belt and with, with Storyville and with the train station, just all the activity. I mean, no wonder people sang about Basin Street back then because there's just so much going on. Yeah, the, the Tango Belt, it's, uh, it's interesting. I'm, you know, it was such a controversy that even the Pope declared it immoral and anybody who had participated in doing the tango dance should confess their sins to a priest. So I always felt that it was very appropriate that the tango bell, you know, that's the kind of casual name the district was giving to itself. But lots of dance halls, lots of saloons, lots of cabarets. And um, the tango during that time period, the first reference that I found to it in the newspapers or the archives of that era referring to itself as the tango belt was roughly 1914, which was really the height of the, the tango craze or the tango fiends as they would call them. It was all the rage. And the, what made it difficult was the society women loved it as well. So there was some respectability brought to it and it would just drive the archbishop bishops and the bishops and the priests just crazy. Well. Well, while we're talking about music, as we tend to do on this show, uh, we have a few couple of music clips. And we like to listen to it. You know, it's really hard. I mean, you probably could do this to pinpoint and say, this was definitely something that was played in Storyville. You know, we can find things that were played from around the time that can give you at least an idea. And maybe we're way off. But the first one we have, and we'll just do a clip, is uh, Scott Joplin. I think it was done like in 1898 or something. And it was. Um, been the maple leaf rag. Now, would that have been a Storyville? Did we heard that? I'm not probably. I'm not the best on on music. I I do know through you know for specific songs you know etc. I do know some music that came out of Storyville as inspiration from it. But I was surprised to find during my research that um, Hawaiian music became all the rage during this kind of right before the last few years of Storyville went out of business. And there's a uh, interview or an essay written by a man who said, you know, in New York, they would play the Hawaiian music, but the musicians only knew like two or three verses or bars and they would just play it over and over and over again. But New Orleans musicians in the in the cabarets were of a much higher caliber and um, could play the Hawaiian style music. So there was definitely trends that that occurred. So you had Hawaiian music and the tango. Yeah. Okay, you have a little bit of a Scott Joplin, Maple Leaf Rag. Also by Scott Joplin, I think this would probably be um, the most famous. This is called The Entertainer, and we'll, uh, it was done like in uh, uh, 1902, I, I believe. And it became really famous, and we'll say why in a moment. But first of all, Scott Joplin and The Entertainer.
And some of you probably say that for me. And then what happened was in the the 1970s, there was a a revival of interest in ragtime. And the movie was filmed called uh, The Sting. Uh, That was with Paul Newman and Robert. I think it won the Academy Award uh, for for Best Picture. It was really a a fun, fun uh, uh, movie. And that was the theme theme to it. And with the full orchestration, it's a fabulous song. I think, wasn't it like, uh, I can't remember if it was that or Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, where it was raindrops keep falling on my head, was also. That was, that was, uh, that was Butch Cassidy. Or Butch Cassidy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was a scene that had nothing to do with anything. They were riding a bike. <laughs> I know, I remember that. And he's got yeah. the. Doing a bike and they had some uh, raindrops. What? What the? Okay. Um, well, thank you for your guide to Storyville. I want to talk a little bit about your uh, your tours uh, with the cemeteries. Uh, okay, we know the big thing is always Marie Laveau, but, but what are some of the things people want to see and that kind of uh, excite people most? Well, it's funny because I, I, I take it for granted that when people come in, I, I, that they know something a little bit about New Orleans cemeteries and almost all the tours that I have given, you know, I always like to start by asking them what they know and if there's anything that they're particularly interested in and and what their background knowledge is. And I would say 80, 90% of them are just like, we have, we have no idea. We were just told to take a cemetery tour. Like this is, this is what we need to do. So they're always a little shocked and astonished by, you know, the history and the customs and, and the people who are in there. And I always say it's, whatever cemetery I'm standing in, it happens to be my favorite cemetery at, at that moment. But the history that's in there and, and the stories and the people are just marvelous. And I started doing these tours because I would be in there doing research and I would hear some tour guides go by with a lot of misinformation or rumors. And I always get very angry when that happens because I feel like New Orleans history is it's weird enough. You don't need to make this stuff up. It's, it's, it's even better that you don't make it stuff up. The truth is, as they say, almost stranger than fiction. So I started giving uh, cemetery tours and then I'm gonna eventually wanna branch out into the French Quarter and do some specialized tours as well as into the uh, garden district. And I research and, and write all of my own tours. So it's filled with a lot of information that might not be out there or say is is not out there but i'm gathering right now i wish i could i wish i could transport sometimes around i'm working on some little videos to do for example where people of storyville are buried where people of the gangsters of prohibition are buried i just found willie piazza's um grave in greenwood cemetery which i was excited about and i'm taken aback by the elevated tombs like they don't see that in a lot of other cities because New Orleans is at sea level, so you really couldn't couldn't bury deep in New Orleans. Yeah, they're taken back by that. And then, you know, the first tombs were basically very modest and, and practical. But around the early 1800s, like 1820s, 1830s, when Dupuy, the architect, came in and he bought this sketchbook of um, tombs from Le Père Chasse in, in Paris. And all of a sudden it kind of became, and this is during the, you know, the beginning of Victorianism, like that they could display their wealth in life and in death. And I love, I equally love the very big elaborate tombs that have stories to them. And as much as I love the kind of small 
modest tombs that somebody might not give a second glance to that has an absolutely fabulous story attached to it. Is there one tomb in particular that doesn't get all the attention of Marie Laveau uh, that, that you feel kind of special about? I, I would say I'm actually working on a blog right now, kind of doing the honorable mentions of each of each cemetery, you know, because each cemetery kind of have its top two tombs that people who are, are aware of might go to and search out. And Marie Laveau is definitely the rock star of St. Louis number one. But there are so many other tombs that are in there. Or, for example, St. Louis number two um, is just a, a bevy of um, Black figures from Reconstruction and musicians, and St. Louis number three has a lot of prominent businessmen and philanthropists, and my favorite tomb in there is James Gallier's tomb, who was the architect and who built Gallier Hall, and he went down with the sinking of the Evening Star in 1866, which in itself is kind of an amazing story. It was this steamship that ran from New York, Cuba, to New Orleans and it went down in a hurricane and it was scandals at the time because there was over 90 prostitutes on the steamship with him because New Orleans madams were tra traveling up to the East Coast to basically handpick prostitutes that they could um, season, that they could season in the brothels in New Orleans. And the season tended to be around November to the end of Mardi Gras because horse racing season was almost just as big as Mardi Gras during that time period. So there's all these prostitutes as well as a French opera company and a French circus company on this luxurious steamship with all of high society that goes down in the middle of this hurricane. It's a story that most people don't, don't know yeah. about. And it's probably my favorite story to tell in St. Louis number three. Well, um, so horse racing season would be a key season like for bringing, bringing the girls oh, in. So that was when, you know, if you're living in a, in a, you know, you're a prostitute in a, in a brothel in New York and you're freezing and somebody comes up, you know, a very elegant woman dressed and, you know, in their finest and says, come and work in my brothel for the season where it's warm and there's going to be a, you know, a lot of customers and a lot of money to be made. So they would, um, some of the, I think it was about seven to nine madams who traveled together to go up and they went around to brothels and hand picked, chose women to ask them if they wanted to come back to New Orleans to, to work a season. So in the course of a year, did these girls experience seasons? Like, I'm, like I'm not sure. I mean, I don't know if, I don't know if they were brought here and then, you know, they went back or if they, if they stayed here, that was one of the, um, you know, of course, there's a lot of stories about women being uh, tricked into coming to New Orleans as well as other cities kind of underneath the illusion of having a job and then getting to the city and being forced to work in a, in a brothel. And then once you're there, um, they would basically blackmail them with their reputation. Well, you've already done this and you can't do anything else. And one of the madams who I'm searching for her tomb right now, who I believe is in St. Patrick's number one was, she was known as Mother Beer. And she was kind of right before Storyville and she specialized in shop girls. So basically gentlemen would come to her and say that they saw their eye on this, you know, really pretty shop girl at the store. And so she would invite them over, you know, friendly older grandma type, invite them over for dinner with these gentlemen. 
and basically say, look, you need to do this or I'm going to tell everybody that you did, which was just the same during that point. So she would basically blackmail and, and bribe these shop girls into having sexual relations with these, with these men. This would be like a continuing relationship. I have no, I have, I have no idea. I don't know if, I mean, there's, uh, as I mentioned before about Josie Arlington's, one of her claim to fame was that no virgin was desoiled under her brothels, but in other brothels, especially Emma Johnson and Lulu White, there would be auctions for, for virgins. You know, they were extremely valuable, extremely, you know, high bidding that they would auction off the, auction off the virgins. And they were always looking for a fresh supply, sadly. You know, there's a, a classic carnival story. I mean, what you just said, man, it kind of shocked me because it puts another spin on it. It was, it was called, like the shop girl queen. And it was about, it was the night of this high level carnival ball. And the girl who was going to be queen couldn't do it. And so they needed to find somebody else. And so somebody knew somebody and got one of the shop girls to go and be queen that night. And at first that sounded kind of like an innocent kind of story. All right, I mean, you know, it's going on. But now I wonder, okay, who knew whom and what kind of liaisons that there were at this sort of time. I mean, during that time period, a, a woman's reputation was everything. And you have some prominent businessman who's spreading rumors about you, but you're not going to be able to, you know, find work. And so some women who just felt helpless felt like, well, I might as well do this and get paid for it because if I don't do it, um, my reputation is going to be ruined as as well. She was um, Mother Beer was a a true predator in in you know in in every in every way and and took advantage of a lot of a lot of young women. Well, you have such a wealth of information. I hope you can sp spread it all. It's really uh, I love it's sharing it. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, it's really important. Uh, I've been negligent and not mentioning enough. This is Sally Asher, who we've had on this podcast before, who's done a lot, a lot of research. Sally, uh, you have a book coming out, Final Stages on Prohibition. Oh, my gosh. I keep saying that. Yes. Um, actually, today I was doing some final edits on the on the Tango Belt section. I keep saying that it's the, I keep saying it's the final edits, the final edits. Um, but I'm really, I, this has been about five, six years that I've been writing it. And I went into it thinking that New Orleans was this kind of island, you know, very Iceland, very small. And I knew that there was going to be stories there because I was shocked to discover that on the general discourse, on the kind of grand narrative, New Orleans has never really been written about in Prohibition. Most scholars tend to focus on the East Coast or the West Coast and occasionally the Midwest. So when I started out doing research in the book, I was stunned that it's New Orleans and no one's ever, no one's ever written about it before. So I really thought that there was just going to be this kind of isol isolationism, just small uh, little quirkiness. I was stunned about what an impact New Orleans had on a national level and on a grand level. And makes me even more shocked that it's never been written about. So it's a really nice blend of all these colorful local characters that have never been introduced before, written about before, kind of combining with these uh, nationally known nationally known characters like everyone from, you know, Al Capone to prohibition agent Izzy Einstein to Gertrude Lithgow, who was considered 
the queen of the bootleggers. She was world famous and she had her one and only trial in New Orleans, which is the equivalent for um, Beyonce coming to try. <laughs> she was considered a superstar. Um, huge crowds would come out and see it. So some of these stories have just been, been lost, but New Orleans was frequently named even by Calvin Coolidge, the president, as this was the wettest place in, in America. And if they could shut down the run rumming trade here, I think he said that they could cut off a third supply of the illegal alcohol that was distributed across the nation. So it was a it was a pretty big deal. And, and excited I wasn't, to share it. I wasn't gonna mention, but being you mentioned his name, before we go, would you mind telling the Iggy Einstein story? I will tell the Izzy Einstein story, but I will, um, I or need to purpose, it, it's, it's, not, it's not correct. Well, <laughs> so so the, the legendary Izzy go. Einstein That's story, you'll have to read the book, but the legendary Izzy Einstein story about declaring New Orleans the wettest city in the entire um, country is actually false. Okay. So that would be a, that would be a, a surprise. Should, should okay. But, yeah. we'll, story, but we'll we'll have you back when the prohibition book comes out and we'll, and we'll go oh thank you yeah i'm i'm anxious to share all those stories i've been holding them in for a long time one other thing we should mention either the children's book about mermaids yeah i that's i want to start writing more children's books so i had this co-worker who she loved mermaids and she was always painting them and drawing them and i started thinking about it one day about how mermaids are kind of portrayed the same way, you know, everywhere. And I thought, well, New Orleanians aren't the same. Like we have our own traditions and our own styles and, and our own customs. And I thought, well, mermaids have to be the same way as well. You know, the mermaids are spread out all over the world and New Orleans mermaids have to be different. And so I wrote a children's book uh, called The Mermaids of New Orleans, which I remember sitting on a panel once with you and somebody said, is it New Orleans or New Orleans? And you said, the only time you say New Orleans is when you are rhyming. So technically, and I laughed and I was like, I'm gonna take that. Rhyming with Cajun Queens, yeah. Yes, and so, um, so I would say that the title of the book is The Mermaids of New Orleans because it rhymes much, much better <laughs> in the verse, but it talks about their life in the Mississippi River and, and there's all these Easter eggs throughout you can find in the pages um, Leah Chase and Big Frida and Margaret Orr and Poppy Tooker um, and Chris Owens, who just recently discovered that she was in the book and she was thrilled and said, um, and you heard her here first, once her club gets up and running, we're going to have a children's book signing at the Chris Owens Club, which will probably be the highlight of uh, my career, which I'm really excited about. But anyway, it tells a story about the mermaids who live on the Mississippi River and the one day a year they come on land as Mardi Gras because according to mermaid lore, they're allowed on land one day a year and New Orleans mermaids choose Mardi Gras. Well, if someone wants to take you a tour, it's called the Red Sash Tour. RedSashTours.com. Oh, if you live in New Orleans, don't fall into this trap and say, well, that's just for tourists. All right. That's not fair. I mean, locals are missing out on a lot of good stuff. I've uh, actually had a lot of locals on my tours, which has been really exciting. I had this, this one woman who had seen me speak at the Cabildo and had my books. And then she had heard that I was doing tours. So she booked one with her husband for one day and then brought her friend for the next day and said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to bring all my friends. Cause I, I, I've lived here and, 
and I had no idea about some of this history. And I've, I've, I bring my friends on tours too sometimes. I make them go on my tours and get their feedback. And, and uh, a lot of my friends um, jog in Midori Cemetery. And they said they had no idea about the history or you know, the monuments there. And it's, oh, it's just, totally. it's amazing. You know, they always for tourists, but no, those things are really, really good. Um, so it's been great, been very informative. Let's do this again soon. Oh, please, that would be wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much. This has been Sally Asher. Thanks to all of you for listening. Thanks for Kelly for keeping us on the air with uh, uh, pulling all the right buttons. See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Louisiana Insider. Subscribe, like, and rate our show where you listen to your podcasts and follow us on social media at Louisiana Life Mag. Executive producer for Louisiana Insider is Kelly Massico in cooperation with Louisiana Life Magazine. For subscription information to Louisiana Life, call 504-828-1380. Our theme music was provided by Rich Collins. Hey, that's me. Join us again next week for more discoveries inside Louisiana.